Well, let me, let me just start by saying I'm not too proud to admit, Josh, better man than me. Be- better man than me. Tattoos aren't my thing. They look like they hurt. They do look like they hurt. You know, what is it about, like this is actually an official tattoo chair. It reminds me of another chair where there's a drill and pain involved. Just me. Just just. Just connecting this. Sorry if you're a dentist, but you know, it's just something about tattoos. And there is, like he said, a permanence to tattoos. And in the same way, there's a permanence to commitments. And so in this series, we're talking about um, what does it look like to be intentional before we make a commitment, but also what does it look like to follow through? And I just want to say, I'm, I'm going to guess that probably you weren't beating down the doors this morning when you found out we we're going to be talking about commitments. You know, I think this is one of those subjects that it's easy to go to the side of, oh gosh, you know how many commitments I've broken? You know how many times I've let people down? And I just want to say, this is not going to be a bummer series. This is going to be a fun series because there is an upside to keeping commitments and honoring them. And that's why the Bible has a lot to say about commitments. You know, thinking about the upside, how many people have had just a good friend who has stuck by you for years? Somebody that you can just depend on. You know, you know that there is a benefit to commitments. There's a benefit to that person saying, I'm going to be your friend, thick and thin. I'm going, to, I'm going to be there. You know, I think about my parents. I don't know how they did this, but my dad worked. He was a blue-collar worker. But they put me through private school from kindergarten to eighth grade. And what that set me up for educationally has had tremendous benefits in my life. I benefited from their commitment. And one of the hearts behind this series is that we believe that God is committed to us. We actually believe that commitment is core to the character of who God is. There are just verse after verse in the Bible that talks about God's commitment. One of them is Psalm 136, and that says this. says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. This is actually a psalm, a song that would have been sung Over and over again, this is just the first three verses. This this phrase, his love endures forever, repeats for 26 verses. And they're just reminding themselves of the faithfulness of God. God is committed to us. And what we know is if we want to grow in relationship with God, and as we have lives that are transformed by God, we naturally begin to be people who see commitments the way that God does. And so this is a series, really, that gives us an opportunity to tap into the character of God and understand what it looks like if we follow in his footsteps. And so I just want to ask that God would teach all of us and he kind of prepare us for what we're going to experience today and in the weeks to come in this series. God, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity we have to gather in a space and in a place where we can connect with your heart. And I just ask that that is exactly what happens today and in the weeks to come, that we don't connect just with um, behaviors, but we connect with your heart. And as we connect with your heart, naturally our behaviors change. And so I just ask that that happens. And when it does, that we look more like your son, Jesus. Amen. So what is the problem we have with commitments? I mean, if I'm honest, I I got commitment issues. I, I struggle with this one. And I think most of us do. What is the problem? When I get into trouble with commitments, what's really behind that? If I were to put it in a sentence, I would say it's this. We underestimate the cost. We underestimate the cost of the commitments we make, and we definitely underestimate the cost of breaking them. And we all pay this cost. I'm going to throw some statistics at you that I um, came across in preparation for this weekend. There's a real economic cost that many of us have already paid for broken commitments. Um, How many people remember a couple years ago, WorldCom, Enron, there was just this host of companies that we found out were cooking the books, and there were all kinds of things happening. Everybody remembers them. It was on the, you know, it was in every headline. And there's actually an economic cost. If you're invested in the stock market, you have paid an economic cost for what happened back in those times with those companies. 
Because coming out of those corporate scandals, there's a set of laws that was passed called the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. And Sarbanes-Oxley just impacts all kinds of corporations, and there's compliance and things that needed to be done to comply with this set of laws. And I've read a crazy statistic that this week, they talked about the cost of it being $1.4 trillion. It's cost $1.4 trillion to implement those Sarbanes-Oxley laws. That's two stimulus packages, people. Two. Two stimulus packages because a handful of companies didn't let their yes be yes. Came across another statistic. $175 million is spent on legal fees every year for divorces in this country. $175 million. That's real money. That's real money being paid because of broken commitments. There's a real economic cost. But there's also a social cost. You know, one of the statistics a friend of mine shared with me this week goes back to the marriage thing. It's, it's actually been proven that Generations are being married later and later. People are delaying the commitment of marriage. And the big reason they're delaying the commitment is because they feel like marriage is a losing proposition. Because they've been maybe through a broken home or they've been through a divorce. And so people are saying, I don't know if I want to step into that because I feel like I don't really have a shot at making it work. And it's only going to end in a broken commitment. So people are getting married later and later. Came across one that was personally convicting for me as a guy. There's a study that was done um, and it said that if you're a man and you're overcommitted at work, I know I'm probably the only guy that struggles with that. So just give me grace, guys, on this one. But, but if you join me on that and you know that you kind of, you know, maybe spend a little bit too much time at the job and you're a little bit too invested in that, it said that if you're overcommitted at work, it actually puts you at an increased risk of heart disease. And that the striving and the stress that comes from being overcommitted to work produces the neurological equivalent of depression in men. So there's a real cost to both ends of the spectrum, either being non-committal or being overcommitted. But I came across um, a principle, a concept that I think illustrates the spiritual cost. And I really believe there is a true spiritual cost when we underestimate commitments and when we break them in particular. And it, I came across it actually in a training environment. When I worked at P&G, we would do these team building training experiences. And I don't know if anybody's ever done any of those, but for, mo for the most part, they're just absolutely wasteless. I mean, they're just wasteful, you know, wasteful time. They really don't help a whole lot. I did one that was like if you were stranded in the desert, you had to pick like what your top 20 items were, what would you need to survive, and we're having arguments over the value of a flashlight, over the value of a canteen. You know, it's just crazy stuff. So for the most part, these are lame, but this one was really, really good. And I came across the concept of personal congruence in that training, personal congruence. And personal congruence says this, says that if you're living in alignment with truth, that's what it means to be congruent. And there's a sense of wholeness that comes when you live in alignment with truth. And I would say when you live in alignment with God's truth. But the principle of personal congruence says there are places in our life where we are incongruent, where our values and what we believe is inconsistent with our behaviors and even some of the words we say. And there is a real emotional and mental and spiritual implication when we are incongruent. And I think commitments is one of these places where we can find ourselves being incongruent. And there's a real spiritual cost for that. Talk about me for a second. For me, I know that some of my incongruence just has to do with the language I use when I make commitments. You know, like I said, I'm one of these guys that has difficulty kind of ending the workday and getting home at a decent hour. And what that means is about two or three times every week, I find myself on the other end of a phone call where my wife is asking me a simple question. Honey, what time do you think you'll be home tonight? Somebody else has been in that conversation, right? You know, what time are you going to be home tonight? And then what do I say next? 
well, if these things come together and all of this stuff happens the way I think it will, I might be able to be home by 5.30 or whatever the time is. Or I find myself saying things like, babe, I'm going to try my best. I'm going to try my best. I'm going to work really hard to get home by whatever time. Now, when I do that, there's an incongruence already, right? I'm already using hedging language. I'll try to. I should. I'm going to do my best. And incongruence shows up in some of the language we use. If I was congruent, I would say, I will be home at this time. Or it's okay to say, I will not be home by this time. I know that. It's a crazy day. I know I'm going to be home after that. That would be a congruent response. And so sometimes it's the language we use. It's also, though, the behaviors that we tolerate, even in our own lives, and the commitments we break to ourselves on a regular basis. I'll give you a, an example. How many people woke up to an alarm clock this morning? Raise your hand if you woke up to an alarm clock this morning. I'm willing to bet you, many of you already, you, the first thing you did today was you broke a commitment to yourself. I'm going to prove it to you. If you're like me and you use an alarm clock, you probably set it for the same time every morning, right? Right? Set it for the same time. So let's just say the time is 5.30. 5.30 in the morning. The alarm went off at 5.30. What was the first thing you did? You pressed the snooze button, right? We all do that. We press the snooze button. Now let me ask you a question. Last night when you set the alarm for the umpteen thousand time for 5.30, did you really believe you were going to get up at 5.30? You knew you were going to get up at 5.47, 6.15. 9.45. You knew you were going to get up later. You knew you were going to get up later. But what is it that we do? We make this commitment to ourselves every night only to break it first thing in the morning. You know? And it's a funny example, but it's things like that that we do. Now, friend, now a friend of mine took this to the nth degree. We were talking about this, and he said, I admit, I do that. I hit the snooze button. He says, so because I'm going to be congruent, I'm just going to go all the way. And I'm going to make it as easy as possible for me to be inconsistent on when I get up. He says, so what I did is I bought a new alarm clock. And the feature that helped me choose this alarm clock was the fact that it was motion censored. So he doesn't even have to make the commitment to press the snooze button. All he has to do is just wake up and wave his hand and it goes 15 more minutes. <laughs> Somebody's like, and where would you buy one of those? I'm interested in knowing. Add that to my Christmas list this year, right? But it's these little things that really cause incongruence in our life, and it chips away at our wholeness when we're incongruence. And so this, this idea of keeping commitments is one of these areas where if we're not careful, we, play, we pay a real spiritual cost in our personal lives and in our relationships because we're incongruent, and it continues to grow. And I think that's why Jesus, in his kind of best of teaching, there's a section in the Bible called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is kind of the definitive teaching of Jesus. It's kind of his best things captured in the sermon that he taught. And we think he might have taught this at different times. And it got collected as this sermon because this was kind of like his top, his top teaching. And in the midst of that, Jesus talks about what does it look like when your life is transformed in relationship with him? What does it look like to have a life that is trending toward having God have more reign and rule over your life? And that's what the Sermon on the Mount captures. And he talks about some big ideas in this. He talks about the big idea of loving your enemies. Loving your enemies. It talks about the big idea of how to actually have a dialogue with God called prayer. But also, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about keeping commitments. And so we're going to take a look at this verse. And this is kind of going to be an anchor verse for the remainder of this series. So we're going to talk a little bit of it today. Brian's going to hit it from another angle next week. And in the weeks to come, we'll probably be revisiting this as well. But in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, Jesus says this. Again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, 
or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. In verse 37, we're really going to focus in on today and in the weeks to come. Verse 37 says, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. And then Jesus says this bold statement, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that today. We're really going to focus on the yes be yes part. And the question we're asking is, what is your word worth? What does it mean to be a yes be yes kind of person? We're going to talk about that. And we're going to explore a little bit about what Jesus meant in that last statement, that bold statement he makes about anything other than this is from the evil one. But I want to give you a little bit of background on why would this make the cut? I mean, if this is Jesus' definitive teaching, there's a lot of stuff he could have talked about. Why did he take the time to focus on keeping commitments as a part of the Sermon on the Mount? And I'm going to give you a little context. And the reason is because just like in our day, in Jesus' time, people regularly underestimated the cost of making and breaking commitments. And here's the thing. In his day, you know who the biggest offenders were in that culture? It was religious leaders, church people. Church people were the biggest offenders in Jesus' day when it came to breaking commitments. Here's how this played out. The priests and the religious leaders in that time had come up with an intricate system of certain words and certain phrases that will enable them to get out of commitments that were inconvenient. And that's why Jesus talks about swearing by heaven and swearing by earth and swearing by the hairs on your head. Because here's, here's what they had set up. They basically said, well, if I make a commitment to you, but I swear by the earth, well, you can't hold me to that commitment. I can break that commitment because it's just the earth. Oh, but if I swear by heaven, if I swear by heaven, then yeah, yeah, I got to keep that commitment. Or they would say things like, you know, I swear by the hairs on my own head. But realistically, they could break that commitment because I, I'm human. I'm fallible. So, you know. I don't have to be held to that, but if I swear to something higher than myself, well then, yeah, i got to break that commitment. So these guys were more interested in bending the rules to make the commitments convenient to get out of than they were in being congruent people. And so Jesus, in that context and in that culture, challenges them. And what's his response? His response is, how about not making any oaths at all? How about not swearing at all and instead simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. What Jesus was saying to them, and I think this is the principle that applies to us today, how about treating commitments in such a way that your word is bond? Simply treat commitments in a way that your word is bond. That phrase, word is bond, has some roots. And it has some roots for me that go back to my high school and my college days because back, back then I was a hip-hop junkie. I mean, I just loved hip-hop music big fan. I really believe that was kind of the heyday for hip-hop. A lot of creativity came out of that day. And so for me, it seemed like every other word coming out of the rapper's mouths in that time was word is bond. And so they were from New York, so it sounded like they were saying word is born because their, their, their vernacular was so strong. And what they basically meant when they said word is bond in the hip-hop culture was it was saying, you can take me at face value. The things that I'm saying to you are true. I'm speaking the truth. You know, you got to love, just a total aside, you got to love the YouTube generation. You got to love YouTube. Like, YouTube is awesome. (laughs) YouTube is awesome. So Saturday, yesterday, I was doing a little research for today and decided that I would look up all of these old rap songs that had Word is Bond in it and see if I could find the videos, you know, because rap videos were a big deal back then. So, and I found all of these videos. Actually, I found one video from a group called Brand Nubian. Now, you got to be a real hip-hop connoisseur to know Brand Nubian. Anybody know Brand Nubian? Anybody? Yes. A couple people. I mean, that's like, that's like vintage right there. So 
Brand Nubian had a song called Word is Bond. And so I found the video and the song, the hook of the song is Word is Bond. We got it going on. Brand Nubian will rock until the break of dawn. So I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm jamming. I'm in my living room. I'm jamming. I started breaking out the old dances and I'm having a good time. And my son, Nathan, who's one, he was with me. And so I'm starting to do my dances and all of a sudden Nathan starts to dance. Now, Nathan only has one move, but he works it. He works it. This is Nathan's move right here. So he's like, and he might, he might put a hand clap in there for, you know, but so we're having an old school hip hop party in the living room, having a good time listening to all these songs. And it just reminded me of this phrase. And so I decided to do a little bit more digging. And what I found out is actually that phrase didn't originate in the hip hop culture. It's actually a financial term. It actually is a financial term. It goes back to the days on Wall Street where you didn't need to write a contract when you would trade, but that you actually had enough integrity in that day that they would say, I'm going to sell you these shares at this price or I'm going to buy these shares from, this, at, from you at this price. Word is bond. My word is bond. You can take me at face value based on what I said. Think about that. Think about a time where that would have been true. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, if your life has been transformed by me, if you're in relationship with God and you're growing and trending in a life that looks like following Jesus, you should be a word as bond person. You shouldn't need to make oaths. You shouldn't need to make all these crazy swearing things. You should simply be a person whose yes is a yes and whose no is a no. We should be word as bond people. Word as bond people in our relationships with friends, with our spouses, and the people that we're committed to in our lives. We should be word as bond people, people who say what we're going to do and we just do it. We should be word as bond people at our jobs. People should be able to count on us. If you're a Christ follower, if you're a person who wants to grow more in your relationship with God, you should be the go-to person at your job when it comes to people doing what they say they're going to do. You should be a word as bond person. It should be a natural thing flowing out of your life because you're in relationship with God. And that's what Jesus is saying. And there's a practical win for all of us when we do this. There's practical benefits. A great book on this topic is the book, The Speed of Trust by Stephen M. R. Covey, and in it, he says this about keeping commitments. He said, it's the big kahuna of all trust behaviors. It's the quickest way to build trust in any relationship, and its opposite, to break commitments or violate promises, is without question the quickest way to destroy trust. Not only is this a personal congruence thing, I would say keeping commitments is the basic building block of a healthy relationship at any level. I came across a story this week in the spirit of football season, came across a story that I think helped to illustrate for me the blessing that really can come when you keep commitments. The story was told by Coach Bear Bryant. For those of you who like college football, Bear Bryant probably is one of the most popular coaches in the college era and certainly one of the most winningest. And he was the coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide from the 50s to the 80s, kind of before he, um, he passed away. And Bear Bryant tells this story of heading from his old job at Texas A&M to Alabama for the first time. And he stopped in this podunk town in Alabama to get a bite to eat. Pulled in, pulls, pulls into the town, sees a sign on a building that says restaurant, says, okay, that's good as any, pulls into the restaurant. Walks into the restaurant, hey, what's your special today? And the special was chitlins. <laughs> now, I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of Enjoying chitlins or not, I have. One time was enough for me, thank you very much. Um, chitlins are pig intestines, but they're seasoned really well, as if that makes a difference. And 
they're fried. So it's really a delicacy in the South, and it's definitely a delicacy in the African-American culture. So chitlins um, are definitely part of African-American culture. And in 1954, Bear Bryant had walked into an African-American restaurant. That just didn't happen in that day. He sits down, he has his chitlins, and the whole time he's eating, the owner of the restaurant is in the corner just tripping out. Just like, who is this white man who is comfortable in my restaurant eating my chitlins? This just doesn't happen in Alabama in the 1950s. And he finally musters up the courage to engage Bear Bryant in a dialogue and ask him who he is. And Bear Bryant says, well, I'm the new coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide. And the owner of the restaurant is like, wait, wait, wait. Do you have a picture or something? Because I want to hang it on the wall. No one is going to believe me if I tell them that you actually had chitlins in my restaurant. And if you can go back that far in your memory, it's actually pre-camera phone days. So I know that's it's going way, way back, way, way back. Just try to imagine a time when you couldn't just snap a picture. So, you know, so Bear Bryant says to the guy, well, I don't have a picture. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm heading to Tuscaloosa, and when I get there, write your address, and I'll, I'll send you back a picture. Goes to Tuscaloosa, gets established, sends the picture back. Doesn't think much of it. Just the commitment he made, he follows through. Well, fast forward several years later. College football is now an integrated sport. And Bear Bryant is on a recruiting trip. And he's recruiting in a small podunk town in Alabama. And there was an African-American player in that town that was going to be the, the piece of a winning puzzle he was putting together. He really wanted this player sitting down. And he's trying to sell the player in Alabama. And he says that pretty early in the conversation, he realized, there's no way I'm getting this player. This is not going to work. This guy is going to Auburn. He had two good friends that were going to Auburn. And he's pretty much there himself. And so Bear Bryant's kind of driving back. He's licking his wounds, trying to figure out, okay, what's plan B? How do we make adjustments? Because we're not going to get this star player. A couple days later, the player calls him. He picks up the phone, and the player says, Coach Bryant, is the offer still standing for me to come and play for you at Alabama? Because if so, I want to say yes to that. And Bear Bryant's like beside himself. He's like, well, what, you know, what's with the change of heart? And the guy says, well, my grandfather knows you. Several years ago, my grandfather had a restaurant. You came in his restaurant, you ate his chitlins, and you promised to send him a picture, and you did that. You followed through on that. And I, I told my grandfather that we had, we had met, and I told him, hey, you know, my, my first choice is Auburn, and I'm going to play for Auburn rather than play for a guy named Bear Bryant in Alabama. And my grandfather sat me down. He said, son, I'm going to tell you something. Bear Bryant can teach you more about life than he can about football. You're playing for Alabama next year. It's a great story. It's a great story. And the principle in the story is it's not always a one-to-one -one correlation. I'm not saying you keep a commitment and 20 years later some great thing's going to happen to you. Here's what I know, though. I bet you that Bear Bryant was a yes, be yes kind of guy. I'm not saying he was a perfect man, but I bet you the trend in his life was to simply let his yes be yes and his no, no. And he didn't know at the time when he did this small, seemingly small act, a commitment he could have easily walked away from, he didn't know what the benefit would be. But if that was the trend of his life, there's a spiritual reality he tapped into, and that's that there is blessing that comes when we simply let our yes be yes. That's just the way it is. And the great thing about this is, and the cool thing about being able to talk this today in a context like this is, you don't even have to believe Jesus existed. You don't have to believe that God exists. This principle is just a principle that plays out in life. It just does. It just does. And I think there's a part of us that knows that. But if you're up for exploring maybe 
that Jesus might have had some divine insight, and maybe there's a reason why he chose in this top of, the best of teaching, to spend some time talking about commitments, I think there might be a deeper lesson for us to learn today. And the deeper lesson, I think, taps into what Jesus meant from that last statement that he made, that kind of controversial statement. So I want to go back and I want to read that again. After he says, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no, Jesus then says, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. That was a reference to Satan. That was a reference to the person the Bible calls the thief, the accuser, whatever you want to call him. That there is a spiritual entity, a real spiritual entity, Satan, and his goal is to steal from us. And so let me just kind of rephrase what Jesus said there. Jesus is basically saying when we take commitments lightly, when we're either overcommitted or we're too noncommittal, it is satanic. Is that kind of just... Take a second to process. Chuck, you seem to be making a whole lot of maybe me falling through on a commitment to say that it's a satanic thing. But I want to say that that's exactly what Jesus meant in that last statement. Here's the reason. Here's what I know. I know, going back to personal congruence, I know that if there are places in my life where what I believe and what I do are inconsistent, I know it's true for me and I know it's true for you. That's an area in my life where I am not experiencing a lot of joy. There's no way I can experience joy when I know my yes is not a yes and my no is not a no. I might be numb to the, to, to the effects of it, but I guarantee you that's not a place in your life where you're experiencing joy. So what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying simply let your yes be yes and your no, no, because that's the place where you experience joy. And anything beyond that is a tactic of a spiritual entity called Satan to rob you and me of joy. So this series on commitments, at the end of the day, is about us getting more joy back in our life. Hey, I'm up for that. I'm up for as much joy as I can get. That's what this is about. That's what this is about. So there's a spiritual insight that Jesus is tapping into, and it's that, you know what? If I really take commitments seriously and I enjoy the fruit of making them and keeping them, I get more joy. I get more joy. So how do we begin to do that? How do we move forward? If we're up for that, if we want to grow, what does that look like? How do we maybe engage in this series? I want to tell you a story of um, how I'm engaging in an area of my life where I need to let my yes be yes and what I'm learning from it. Because I think there's a posture that God is teaching me that is relevant for all of us who want to go to a different place on commitments in this series. So, you know, one of the commitments that I have made to myself and I've made it to my wife is for our family... I'm going to take one day off in seven and just unplug, and it's a day for us to wholly connect as a family. I mean, we're doing dinner together all through the week. We're spending time together all through the week. But there's something special about just taking one day and wholly connecting as a family. Now, there's a spiritual principle behind that, the principle of the Sabbath, the principle of a day of rest. And, and I just believe that that principle is something that I need to commit to. And so I just know that that's a commitment that has fruit for our family. But if I'm honest, I violate that commitment a lot. I violate it by doing a little bit of work while they're still asleep so that when they wake up, then my mind is clear. But that little bit of work never gets done before they wake up. And then all of a sudden, i got to do a little bit more work before I can engage with them. It's these little things. And what I realize is, you know what? On any given week, there may be a real legitimate reason why I have to adjust that day and make some different choices. But you know what happens over time? It's what I call death by a thousand paper cuts. 
Death by a thousand paper cuts where it's like, you know, I did it one week, but then I wound up doing it the next week. And then I wind up just getting in a pattern in my life, the whole drift strategy, where it's like I just drift to a place where I'm not honoring that day. And what God has begun to do in me, and I would say this is the, the, the way he tends to work in spiritual growth in my life, he's been gently challenging me in that area. And I say gently challenging me because it hasn't been a guilt thing, but what God has really been doing is opening my eyes and changing my heart and how I see that commitment of the Sabbath. And one of the things that he's done is helped me to see that there is a real cost to my violation of that, of that day. There's a real cost that I personally pay of not getting the rest that I need and not getting the replenishment that I need, but there's a real cost my family plays, me as a part of that family, because there is benefit to wholly connecting one day every week. And when we don't do that, we lose something as a family. So there's a, there's a real cost. But the other thing, and I think the thing that really helped me change my perspective on this, is I begin to see that the Sabbath and that day off is not about duty. It's not about something I have to do because it's the right thing to do. It really is a day that provides an opportunity for delight. I get to delight with my family in whatever we're doing the day of the Sabbath. That day we choose to take off, I get to delight in that. And as my heart began to change, Certain behaviors and certain conversations naturally flowed out of that change of heart. Here's the first thing that my wife and I realized. We had picked the wrong day. We had picked the wrong day. My rhythm, if I'm not teaching on the weekend, my rhythm is Sunday is a work day for me anyway. I'm here connecting with volunteers and doing other things that are kind of other parts of my role besides what I do here on stage. And so, you know, I'm doing work on Sunday, and then Monday through Thursday is a work, are work days for me as well. So Friday is kind of like my Saturday, and Saturday would kind of like be my Sunday for many people who work a 9 to 5 Monday through Friday. And we had picked Friday as the Sabbath day. I had picked it as the Sabbath day and saying that that would be my day to kind of wholly connect and unplug. There's only one problem with Friday. It just doesn't work for our family. It doesn't work for our family, you know, because I'm off on Friday, but pediatrician isn't off on Friday. That's a great time for us to be together at Nathan's appointments and those types of things. Doctor's offices don't close on Friday, so if my wife is trying to schedule things, her hairdresser is open on Friday, so she wants to get a chance to take care of herself. I mean, there's all of these things that play into why Friday's just not the right day for our family. So the first thing we did, the first choice we made was why don't we make it Saturday? Why don't we make it Saturday? Because Saturday tends to work, and then on days, you know, weekends like this where I'm teaching, you know, we flip that and it'll be Monday. But, but let's make it Saturday. We got more freedom in our schedule. The interesting thing is from there, we started to have some interesting conversations that continue where we just started asking each other, what does delight actually look like for you on that day? What would delight you on a day where we're wholly connecting as a family? And we started dialoguing with each other about that. And that led to some disciplines and some choices of what we will do on the Sabbath and some things that we won't do on the Sabbath. And I just recognized that this isn't about duty. Keeping this commitment is not about duty for me. I now realize keeping this commitment is a chance to get some joy. And that's what God is teaching me. And so I think from that story, I learn a posture of how to engage in growing in my keeping in my choosing of commitments. And I think it's true for all of us. And so it's this. I want to say right up front, if you approach this series with a try harder mentality, you're going to be frustrated. You're probably already frustrated. Because the last thing you needed when you came in here was another thing to add to your to-do list, right? Another commitment. It's the last thing you needed. And I just want to say that is not the heart behind the series, and I don't think it's God's heart. God's heart is this, that as he changes our heart, that change of heart leads to change behaviors. A change of heart leads to changed behaviors. So what we're up for in this series, what I'm personally after in this series, 
is that God would change my heart, that he would change my perspective on how I see the commitments I'm engaging in, and that that change of heart would naturally flow out into change behaviors that enable me to experience more joy. So that's the heart behind the series and the goal that we're looking for. And I just want to pray that in this moment, God would kind of just seal that for us, that if we came in here thinking this was a try-harder series, we would just walk away from that, and we would receive the opportunity to maybe have God change our heart on some of these things. Let's just ask that he would do that. God, I'm praying that um, based on what we've experienced so far, and especially what we're going to experience in the next few minutes, that there would be a heart change that happens. Um, God, even if we're here and we're just kind of seeking and understand, and we don't know if we really believe all of this stuff, God, that maybe there's a perspective that we heard today that could just be something that we actually try to apply. And as we do that, and our hearts are changed, that it just naturally flows into behaviors that bring us joy. I ask that you would do that for everyone here. Amen.